When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of campaign curiosities. I'm John Dickerson, host of Face the Nation. Our Whistle Stop today is a Monday night in the spring of 1948. We're at the Wordman Park Hotel in Washington, D.C., overlooking Rock Creek Park. A group of liberal advisors of President Harry S. Truman are attending their regular Monday meeting. The leader is Clark Clifford, the president's counselor, and they're gathered in the apartment of Jack Ewing, who was once the vice chairman of the Democratic National Committee. The subject over their steak dinner is President Truman's re-election. It isn't going to happen if somebody doesn't put a plan together. The sentiment is conveyed in a memo that Clifford has been reading and rereading for months. It's written by a Washington lawyer named James Rowe, and it's a battle plan for Truman's re-election. Rowe writes, I don't know whether Mr. Truman would be elected if everything in this memo were done to perfection, but I do know that if no attempt is made to do the major suggestions, us Democrats ain't got a chance in hell. The Monday night group, as they are called, this group meeting at the Wardman Park, was discussing how to implement a key first provision of that political memo, how to get Truman out west. That's where he needed to shore up some support where the Republican Party was making inroads. The Republican Party has been out of office, the presidency, for 16 years, but they had a bang-up set of victories in 1946, playing off of that discontent with Truman and the Democrats. They had to get Truman out west, but they had a problem. One... It couldn't look like he was campaigning, overtly campaigning. Even though it's the spring of 1948, it would look bad for a president to just be wasting all of that time campaigning for re-election. But the second problem was they didn't have a lot of money. They needed some pretext, some reason to create an official trip out west to get Truman out there. Well, Oscar Chapman, who was in this Monday night group, Undersecretary of Interior, turns out he was friends with the president of the University of California, Berkeley. And that president of Berkeley was looking for a commencement speaker. Now, it turns out the president of Berkeley, a fellow named Robert Sproul, was a conservative, which is funny enough in its own right. He wasn't a Truman man, but he wanted the PR for Berkeley. So president had to get to Berkeley. And what better way to get to Berkeley than to take a long railroad trip ride? And of course, on the way, he would touch millions of voters laying the groundwork for his presidential campaign. If you're going to call a podcast whistle stop, you're eventually going to have to get around to the election of 1948 and Harry Truman's famous train trips. Other presidents had campaigned by train, of course, but no series of journeys along the tracks played the role that Truman's 17-car long journeys played in this election of 1948. Here's why. It's like a movie. I mean, these train trips are just the cinematic perfection of what we want in a campaign. It's like the triumph of grit over circumstance. It showed that campaigns matter, that candidates matter, and it's the epitome of what we like to think of as the democratic transaction. A man works his way across the landscape voter by voter and changes minds with his authenticity and his pluck. This former haberdasher from Missouri 
It's got all of the gold of the American story in it. You know, it's not only grit across the country, but an underdog wins by sheer dint of his waking up before the sun and going to bed long after the sun was set. It's the Rocky story. But it's also a modern tale in that pundits got this race totally, totally wrong. There are lots of amusing quotes we'll get to at the end of pundits being 100% certain that Truman was going to lose and 1,000% wrong. Here's how bad things were for Truman going into this campaign. Truman is a gone goose, said Congresswoman Claire Booth Luce. Most of the punditry centered around the fact that the Democrats had gotten just trounced in 1946. And by March of 1948, the president's approval rating had dropped to 36 percent. That's basically George Bush at the end of his second term levels. Truman was so unsure about his election that he let Eisenhower know that if the general wanted to run for president, Truman might be happy to be his running mate. Truman wasn't the only one with that idea. The Americans for Democratic Action, which should have been supporting the Democrat, launched an effort to draft Eisenhower. You may remember that Eisenhower served two terms as the Republican president. But in 1948, you may also remember that even before Eisenhower ran in 1952, nobody knew what party he was in. Well, in 1948, the Democrat for Eisenhower movement was so anxious to find any alternative to Truman that they didn't look too close closely at his ideology either. The final insult was that Hugh Mitchell, the Democratic leader in the state of Washington, sent a telegram to the White House asking President Truman if he would consider serving as chairman of the draft Eisenhower committee. The trip to Berkeley was dubbed by Clifford the Shakedown Cruise because he knew his candidate needed some practice. Truman couldn't deliver a proper speech. He had no sense of pace. He put the emphasis in the wrong word place. He looked down at his text so that it appeared when he was giving his speech that he was delivering it out of the top of his head. So in the spring of 1948, his advisors knew they had to – and this again was in that crucial memo. Okay, they have to get him out west, but they also need to push him to improvise. Instead of speaking from a text, he needs to start speaking extemporaneously, and he starts in the spring to do that. In a couple of speeches, he starts just speaking off the cuff. This expression comes back and back again and again. And we see this today with a candidate like Jeb Bush, who can't give a formal speech very well, but in the Q&A afterwards is much more compelling and more human looking. Truman starts to do this and starts getting praised for seeming like a real human and speaking clearly and speaking plainly. But that was a big departure for a president. We think of it now as not that big a deal, but here's how big a deal it was at the time. The Washington Post thought it was such a danger to the citizenry and democracy that they wrote an editorial criticizing Truman for speaking outside of a prepared text. Here's what the Washington Post wrote. Truman's new technique in addressing the people was illustrated by his extemporaneous speech for the National Conference on Family Life. He spoke with complete lack of formality and undoubtedly succeeded in communicating his ideas to the audience in a personal manner. That sort of address certainly holds his listeners more effectively than the reading of a set speech which has been prepared and combed over carefully by presidential advisors. It is said that the president intends to employ this new technique when he makes his tour out west. Then the post goes on to wag its finger. Mr. Truman cannot get away from the fact that his words become those of the president of the United States. When the president speaks, something more than an off-the-cuff opinion or remark is expected, unless he is talking informally and off-the-record for a small group. Much as we applaud the president's courage and flexibility in experimenting with this new technique, therefore, we cannot suppress the hope that when he speaks for the whole nation, or for the whole world to hear, 
that the advantages of weighing his words will not be overlooked. It's comforting to see that backwards-running sentences are not just something that today's opinion writers have cooked up. Nevertheless, the Truman people are ecstatic that this extemporaneous speaking is going well. So on June 3rd, the presidential special, which is what it was called, glides out of Washington's Union Station, headed westward. The last car on the caravan was the luxurious armor-plated Ferdinand Magellan. The crucial thing to know about the Ferdinand Magellan, in addition to the fact that it was armor-plated, was that it had a gigantic platform on the rear of the train, and that was the platform from which Truman would give his speeches. Truman's message on his trip out west was that the Republicans in Congress were thwarting his every effort to help the common man. This was another element in that strategy memo. In the State of the Union at the beginning of the year, Truman had laid out a series of policy proposals with the clear intention that he would exploit conflict rather than work towards legislation with the new Republican Congress. Through that conflict, his political fortunes would grow, and Clifford and Truman's other strategists had convinced themselves that the policy goal for 1948 was Truman's reelection, not the actual passage of policy, because they didn't think much was going to get passed that was useful in 1948, and they had a longer set of policy goals they wanted to enact, which would only work if Truman was elected to a full four-year term. So basically, 1948 was a year in which policy fights were the most important thing to get out of Congress because it would make Congress look obstructionist. And that was okay because it was all in the service of electing Truman for another four years. So Truman pounded the Republicans on the stump. He told reporters that the 80th Congress was the worst in history, which produced a series of feigning spells among Republicans. The House Majority Leader Charles Halleck said Truman was the worst president in history. Congressman Cliff Clevenger of Ohio called him a nasty little gammon and a Missouri jackass. Robert Taft, you remember him as Mr. Republican, who lost to Eisenhower in that fight in 1952, accused Truman of blackguarding Congress at whistle stops all over the country. Now, you may not have noticed it because it's the name of this podcast, but whistle stop was an ill-advised word there for Taft to use. Why? Because to call these towns in which Truman was stopping mere whistle stops was to denigrate their size and importance, a whistle stop being a place you don't stay in for very long because it doesn't amount to much. Well, Democratic officials telegraphed local officials along the president's route and said, please write the Democratic National Committee whether you agree with Senator Taft's description of your town as, quote, a whistle stop. So in Indiana, a correspondent wrote, Senator Taft is in very poor taste to refer to Gary as a, quote, whistle stop. 135,000 citizens of America's greatest steel city resent this slur from Idaho. If Taft referred to Pocatello as, quote, a whistle stop, it is apparent he has not visited progressive Pocatello. And on and on, they complained across the country. But the trip for Truman was not without its own gaffes for Truman himself. At least twice he appeared on the train platform in his pajamas and bathrobe. He said, I understood that it was announced that I would speak here. He told one of these crowds along the way, I'm sorry, I'd gone to bed, but I thought you would like to see what I look like, even if I don't have any clothes on. Perhaps one of the most memorable ones, though, was in southern Idaho. He was dedicating the new Willa Coates Airport, and Truman began his speech by praising the brave boy who had died for his country, only to be informed by a tearful Mrs. Coates, the mother, that Willa was not a boy. It was a girl. She had not died in the service of the country. She had died in a civilian plane crash. 
Truman's problem beyond the gaffes was that there was a split in his party. On the left, he had liberals who were uniting with the communists and who basically thought he was too interventionist overseas and thought he wasn't doing enough on civil rights at home. On the right, he had the Dixiecrats in the South who thought he was doing too much on civil rights. Strom Thurmond would go on, the governor of South Carolina would go on to be the Dixiecrat candidate. That was the scene within the Democratic Party as he returns from this successful trip out west, successful despite the gaffes because it gives him this new platform, but still faces a shaky situation in his own party when he comes back from the trip and goes to the Democratic convention. The Associated Press wrote this about the convention. The Democrats act as though they have accepted an invitation to a funeral. Democratic delegates, wrote William Manchester, had a grim and hammered look. Because Truman had been giving so many speeches that had been written by his handlers and because people at the convention hadn't been at the whistle stops along the way, it was still unclear whether he was much of a candidate. And so they expected him to come to the podium when he finally won the nomination, won it because there were splits in the party and no real alternative. One of the signs at the convention said, we're just mild about Harry. They hadn't really seen this new fighting extemporaneous guy. So when he gets up to speak and accept the nomination, which happened at 1242 in the morning, it was this new fellow. And everyone was shocked by the high pitched tones and chopping of the air. And people started to get pretty excited. Truman cried out, Senator Barkley and I will win this election and make Republicans like it. And if voters don't do their duty by the Democratic Party, they are the most ungrateful people in the world. What's great about the way Truman was talking on the stump is he wasn't just beating up on Republicans. He was beating up on voters for having elected Republicans into office in 1946 and basically trying to shame them into doing the right thing in 1948. Here is a little audio of Truman at the convention laying out a few attacks on the Republican Party. The Republican Party, as I said a while ago, favors the privileged few and not the common everyday man. Ever since its inception, that party has been under the control of special privilege, and they concretely proved it in the 80th Congress. But then comes the masterstroke of his convention, which sets up the next set of fights with Republicans and sets up the next big whistle-stop tour for him. He calls for the 80th Congress to come back into session to finish the work that they had not done. My duty as president requires that I use every means within my power to get the laws the people need on matters of such importance and urgency. I am therefore calling this Congress back into session on the 26th of July. The New York Times wrote that this set the convention on fire. Time magazine wrote, There is no doubt that he lifted the delegates out of the doldrums. He roused admiration for his political courage. Republicans, of course, were apoplectic. Hugh Scott, who you may remember, helped draft Eisenhower in 1952, said, It was the act of a desperate man who is willing to destroy the unity and dignity of this country and his government for partisan advantage after he himself has lost the confidence of the people. So not only has Truman been campaigning across the country, beating the Dickens out of the Republicans, but he's now using his power as president to pull the Republican Congress back in. 
and Republicans say that he's further damaging the presidency. Now, despite all that caterwauling, it was causing just the kind of internal debate in the Republican Party that Truman had hoped. So on the one hand, Scott, even though he was complaining publicly, was saying privately, look, Republicans should cooperate with the agenda items that Truman has laid out so that they can deprive him of this campaign message. But Mr. Taft, Mr. Republican of Ohio, said, we're not going to give that fellow anything. And this, of course, delighted Truman. What he had asked legislators to do was essentially control inflation, increase the minimum wage, extend Social Security, and increase housing programs. All of that had vague antecedents in the Republican platform. And so Truman was able to say, you won't even do what your platform says you want to do. This is one of the many instances in which the party platforms, which are totally separate from the candidate themselves, have nevertheless been used as a weapon to beat the candidate. And what was important here was for Truman to tie Dewey, who is a governor, with the Republicans in Congress. He needs to find a way to make them all one big hairy mess. And he sort of does this by taking Dewey's platform and tying it to the inactivity of the Republicans in Congress. So after they refused to work with Truman when he called the Republican Congress back into session, Truman kept not only beating up on Republicans, but beating up on the public. If you send another Republican Congress to Washington, you're a bigger bunch of suckers than I think you are. Two thirds of you stayed home in 1946 and look what Congress we got. That is your fault. That is your fault. Imagine a candidate saying that now, telling the voters that they were responsible for the trouble the country was in. So the big, big train trip for Truman, though, after the soft launch of his train trip starts on September 17th, 1948. The Magellan would be once again taken out of Union Station. And in June, Truman traveled 9,000 miles. On this trip, this series of trips, he would travel 21,928 miles, as far nearly as it would take you to go all the way around the actual world. There would be three major tours in the fall. The first was to California for 15 days, then a six-day tour of the Middle West, followed by 10 days in the Northeast, and then a return home trip to Missouri, where he was from. The total trip would take 33 days. No president had ever done a series of trips at that length, and no president since has done such a thing. Truman was 64, but he wasn't worried about his health. He told his staff, it's going to be tough on everyone, but that's the way it's going to be. I know I can take it, I'm only afraid that I'll kill some of my staff, and I like you very much, and I don't want to do that. As he set out on the road, a pilot train would go in front of his locomotive five miles ahead of the president to absorb any possible trouble. The entire trip when it was launched was incredibly ambitious, but it was seen as a totally lost cause. On September 9th, a week before Truman would even set out on his first inch of this trip, the pollster Elmo Roper wrote, political campaigns are largely ritualistic, and all the evidence we have accumulated since 1936 tends to indicate that the man in the lead at the beginning of the campaign is the winner at the end of it. The winner, it appears, clinches his victory early in the race and before he has uttered a word of campaign oratory. So Roper stopped polling. He said it's over. Dewey's going to win. So Truman went out and unleashed some extraordinary oratory by today's standards. The Republicans have begun to nail the American consumer to the wall with spikes of greed. He compared Republicans to gluttons of privilege and in Iowa charged that the Republican Congress has already stuck a pitchfork in the farmer's back. 
Congress was thoroughly surrounded by lobbyists, the most in any history of Congress. He preached against trickle-down policies, which was a term I associate with criticisms of Reagan, but was there before that. And he continued to do this as the leaves turned from green to brown and the days grew shorter. He 16 stops sometimes in a day. He would keep up this blistering invective. And according to the Los Angeles Times on Friday, October 26th, Truman said basically the Republicans were tools of fascists and compared them to Hitler and Mussolini. When a few men get control of the economy of this nation, they find a front man to run the country for them. Before Hitler came to power, control over the German economy passed into the hands of a small group of rich manufacturers. Think about that for a moment. We're after World War II. Really, really recently, Hitler was a big force in the world. And he, Truman, the incumbent American president, is comparing the entire opposition party to fascists in Italy, Hitler in Germany, and the Japanese who launched the sneak attack on Pearl Harbor It's an extraordinary thing for a president to say. But it wasn't just the strength of Truman's shots at the Republicans that were they thought were going to work out for him. He had a research team that was kind of a new thing in politics. When he would go through these towns, the research team, seven people working in an airless office at DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C. Philip White has a book called Whistle Stop about this campaign and makes the argument that the research team was the key to these trips because it wasn't just that Truman was beating up on the Republicans. In each town, he had, and remembered 16 stops a day. So 16 different times a day, he had a little piece of information about the local town or a local official there or knew what topic to talk about in the very specific place. So he gave 352 addresses along these 33 days and these three different trips. And at each one, he had some special issue to talk about. And the reason that this was important is that he was making a large values case against the Republicans, saying, I'm for the working man. They are surrounded by lobbyists and care only about their jewel-encrusted self-interest. And he was saying, I'm with you. I care about the local people. Well, if he cared about the local people, he had to know about what was going on locally. So He was talking about flood relief in the Pacific Northwest, labor relations in Detroit, grain bin shortage in Iowa, or civil rights in Harlem. It showed that he not only intellectually understood them, but he was the kind of guy they could trust to know about them when he was in office. And sometimes he would add a little stage acting that would help with this. At a few stops, he would see a man with a horse, and he'd walk over the horse, open the horse's mouth, and from the arrangement of teeth, know how old the horse was. Imagine that, one of the shocked horse riders told the Associated Press. Who'd have thought the president of the United States knows about horses? So compared to Truman, who is just letting it all go on the campaign trail, but also being smart and wise about what he says to the local audiences, we have the figure of Governor Dewey. Dewey basically was a cold fish. He ignored Truman. He was running the what we recognize as the Familiar Challengers campaign. He didn't want to talk about specific issues. He wanted the race to be a referendum on the incumbent. He presented himself as sort of high-minded and public-spirited. He was going to bring the country together and only offered store window generalities. So Truman was getting really super specific and Dewey was just polishing apples and praising motherhood. And you may remember something similar to this when Mitt Romney ran against Barack Obama kept the focus on Obama, didn't say much about himself, 
But when you are pushing bromides all the time, it means people focus on your gaffes. Now, we think of that as a modern confection. But for Dewey, it was the same problem. You say nothing. And so when you actually say something that's interesting, even if it's a mistake, people tend to think that's the whole bundle of who you are. So there was the comedic things when Dewey would say, America's future is ahead of us. People would laugh. He would constantly be compared to the man on the wedding cake as just being a super formal fellow in a dark suit. He was the only man who could strut sitting down, wrote one wag. The New Yorker's Richard Revere reported that at rallies, he comes out like a man who has been mounted on casters and given a tremendous shove from behind. And so in this kind of what kind of a man is Dewey atmosphere, he has a sort of his 47% moment, which is he's on his own little train ride and the train starts to move backwards towards the crowd. It finally stops a few feet from the crowd and there are no casualties. But this upset Dewey and he said one of two things. He said either that's the first idiot I've had for an engineer or first lunatic I've had for an engineer. He probably should be shot at sunrise, but I guess we'll let him off because no one was hurt. So newspaper men had been having to tap out dull paragraph after dull paragraph about Tom Dewey. And now they had some sort of moment of serendipity, at least a little bit. And so this became the story that was passed around about Dewey. And of course, it became the rallying cry in union halls and railroad houses across the country. Nevertheless, despite Dewey's formality and rigidity and the fact that he was the butt of jokes, it cannot be overstated how much the press thought Dewey was going to win and how much they thought Truman's whistle-stop campaigning was a fool's errand by a slightly unhinged president. Here are the series of mistakes that the press made. So Life magazine put Dewey on the cover under the caption, the next president of the United States. The New York Times headline predicted Thomas E. Dewey's election as president is a foregone conclusion. Newsweek published opinions from 50 political reporters, all 50, predicted that Truman would lose. When they brought the news to Truman, it was on the whistle stop. They brought this news to him and he said, oh, those damn fellows, they're always wrong. Forget it, boys. Let's get on with the job. The funniest part was when the columnists had to set their stories on Monday before the election for publication on Wednesday after the election. So Drew Pearson, the columnist, wrote, I surveyed the close-knit group around Tom Dewey, who will take over the White House 86 days from now. He then triumphantly named all of the members of the new president's cabinet. Joseph and Stuart Alsop wrote, The first post-election question is how the government can get through the next 10 weeks. Events will have to wait patiently until Thomas E. Dewey officially replaces Harry S. Truman. The press wouldn't let go of this belief. Even at midnight on election night, Truman woke up and heard the radio, and the announcer said that Truman was ahead by 1,200,000 votes, but then went on to say, it's still the case that Truman is undoubtedly beat. Truman not only won, he totally flipped control of Congress. So whereas in the 80th Congress, Republicans held control of the Senate, after the election of 1948, Democrats won nine seats and took control of the Senate. In the House, Republicans lost or Democrats won 75 seats to take over control of the House. So Truman didn't just beat the pundits on the presidential question. He walloped them on total control of Congress. You could argue that basically this was the greatest collective mistake in punditry 
in history. And it's why candidates are always, even when they're down and totally defeated, are always talking about the famous headline that read, Dewey defeats Truman. The election was such a shock that William Manchester lists this in his short catalog of moments that Americans of that generation could remember. So they could remember Pearl Harbor, the death of Roosevelt, the assassination of John Kennedy, and the election of 1948. The New York Sun, a very conservative paper, wrote, you just have to take your hat off to the beaten man who refuses to stay licked. Mr. Truman won because this is still a land which loves a scrapper and which intestinal fortitude is still respected. At least the pundits had a good sense of humor about themselves. A huge sign hung across the Washington Post building and it read, Mr. President, we are ready to eat crow whenever you are ready to serve it. And the Alsop brothers, who had been so spectacularly wrong, wrote, there is only one political question left for the political class and that is how they want their crow cooked. Historians with their ret- retrospective wisdom see forces in 1948 that were not apparent to Truman and his strategists at the time. The Dixiecrat defection from the Southern Democrats was not as much of a threat as they thought at the time. But this presents us with a traditional question we have in our campaigns today, which is, was it that the Dixiecrat movement wasn't really a threat to Truman? Or was it the fact that Truman was crossing the country fighting like mad and engaging in all of this campaigning that sapped some of the strength from the Dixiecrat threat and that also sapped the strength of the threat from the left, from Wallace, Henry Wallace, who'd been running to Truman's left, that all this vigorous campaigning on Truman's part sapped the strength of those two forces. So we don't really know. And this is still a question in our politics today. How much does campaigning really matter? How much is it the underlying forces? The Truman 1948 campaign is is the Romantics campaign. It is the one that all campaign reporters think of when they think of the narrative drama of a presidential race and probably fits in there with Kennedy in 1960, McGovern, in the primaries of 1972, McCain in 2000, and Barack Obama in 2008, in terms of a race in which the actions of a candidate can be connected to a final outcome, which means that every shake, waddle, twitch, and and roar has huge significance. And that's not just why supporters are romantic about this race, but why this is something that they hope to see in future races and tend to cause the kind of overreading of events because people think that, oh, perhaps this is another instance in which the large crowd sizes and the personal characteristics of the candidate are going to change the immutable forces of politics. But you could argue that one day we may again have a campaign at least a little bit like Truman's for two reasons, that if the country is totally split by ideology, it still means that there are some number of people at the margin who are swing voters. And if everybody's learned to mobilize all their supporters, the marginal voters, there may not be a huge swath of independence like the ones Truman was trying to go after and that he ultimately got. But even a smaller group of voters who are truly up for grabs could still sway an election where the elections are so very close. And it may also be true that We are so used to freeze-dried candidates saying the most pre-combed, pre-cooked statements that a candidate who actually comes out and speaks extemporaneously or off the cuff, as Truman did, might actually capture that deep longing for some little drop of authenticity in our politicians. That's clearly part of what is the appeal of Bernie Sanders. It's what made John McCain appealing. And if those two things are possible, 
if it's possible still for voters who are undecided to matter and be swayed by a candidate, and if it's possible that authenticity might still creep back into politics. It may also be possible that candidates will get onto a train again and then go across the country traveling from town to town and having an actual conversation about politics, which would be great because that would mean more whistle stops. And we need more whistle stops in order to have more episodes of Whistle Stop. We'd love to hear what you think about Whistle Stop. Send us an email at podcasts at slate.com. Or even better, leave us a review in the iTunes store. Helps us spread the word. Head over to iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts. Our producer is Mike Volo. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. And our executive producer is Andy Bowers. Whistle Stop is part of the Panoply Network. Check out the entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Whistle Stop Crackerjack researcher, Brian Rosenwald, did all of this week's research wearing an authentic 1948 train conductor's uniform. I'll be back in two weeks with another edition of Whistle Stop. I'm John Dickerson. Whistle Stop.